So this, after, this evening, uh, what I'd like to look a little at is to continue a little with this theme of inquiry, which is uh, one of the theme of the retreat, and also the theme of compassion. Because sometimes when we tell you to meditate, to be aware, and to look, to notice the impermanence, the conditionality, the connectivity, and you might think, but first often you ask, how do I do this? And next question is, why should I do this? And actually, the reason to do this is very much because I would say the inquiry is what actually will lead us to compassion. And that's what I like to look at uh, this evening, is the connection of the experiential inquiry with the compassion. And I think it's very important when we talk of the three characteristics, which are impermanence, suffering, and non-self, that generally the way they kind of uh, talked about, but I look at them in more detail. And in a way, we ask to look into them, but we are asked to look into them not in a way in an abstract manner, but in an experiential manner, to look inside the experience that we have in the moment and to notice those characteristics. So in a way, I think what this leads to is actually experiential understanding, and that I would say is a key to compassion, to a compassionate attitude which really manifests in the way we are, in the way we relate. And so in a way, this understanding, in a way there are different kind of wisdom. You have the wisdom which comes from listening, the wisdom which comes from reflecting, but also which I think more importantly, the wisdom which comes from experience that you can what experiential wisdom. And to me, that's where wisdom and compassion are really connected with each other. From that experiential wisdom, then that kind of, in a way, it removes obstacle to the compassion really kind of displaying itself, manifesting. And in a way, this experiential wisdom is very much about looking into the three characteristics of impermanence, of suffering, of no self. And so in the meditation, in the vipassana aspect of the meditation, that's what we do. We try to look deeply and notice. And, and at one level, it's interesting because vipassana means to look intensely, to look deeply. When actually, when you do it, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't seem like much. You sit there and you notice, oh yes, my thoughts are changing. Oh yes, the breath is changing. Oh yes, the sound is changing. And at that level, I mean, it's just, the sound is there, it's gone. And at that level, it's very minor. You might think, so what? It's there, it's gone, so what? And the thing is, again, I think we have to make a little of a difference, because often we kind of uh, conflate the two, the difference between, in a way, cultivating vipassana and also the effect of vipassana. Because often vipassana is translated as insight. And if you translate vipassana as insight, 
then actually you're talking at the effect aspect of vipassana. When actually a lot of the time what we do is more the cultivation of vipassana. And then time to time, we get the effect. So I think to be careful, there is these two aspects to this word vipassana. One which is a cultivation of looking deeply, experientially noticing the three characteristics, and through that noticing, then in a way having the insight. And the insight is actually experiencing for ourselves the changing nature, the suffering, the non-self, what is kind of non-self condition. I think it's important to see the, the two aspects, that sometimes they come together, but sometimes there is more like a kind of, they come sequentially, one follow the other. And often this idea of insight is that you see something you have not seen before. But in a way, it doesn't mean that you have not seen it. Because I think we see, we see it all the time. We see change all the time. But we don't realize it. We don't realize its meaning in terms of the way we are, in terms of the way we behave. And that's why inside, actually, is you see something you have never seen before. In a way, you've seen it before, but you really see it in a new way. I think this is important. It's not that suddenly you see something kind of amazing. I think actually often when you have an insight, you realize something and you feel a little stupid. How come I did not see this before? Instead of being this kind of amazing, exotic insight. I think because often people say, oh, I am not having any insight because they think it's this kind of amazing, exotic kind of something that they never thought of before. I think it's more that you see something you've seen, but you really see it in a different way. And then it really make a difference. And so, in a way, when we talk about the three characteristics of impermanence, of suffering, of non-self, often people think it's a little gloomy. You know, I mean, look, ooh, could not we look at something which is more you, joyful and kind of, you know, simpatico? Once I was on a, in Mexico doing a retreat, a weekend retreat, and we did not do much meditation, you know, much less than now. And one person said, oh, this is really gloomy. Couldn't we kind of sing a bit, you know? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, but we can't do less than that. And I'm not good at singing. But I thought it was interesting, you know, kind of making it a little more, kind of, you know, livening it up a bit. But personally, I would say, actually, the three characteristics are really the door to compassion, to a really genuine, what I would call a genuine, creative response of compassion. I think the two, in a way, go together. And also the fact that often the misperception of the three characteristics generally leads to suffering. Suffering for ourselves, suffering for others. Because we have this strange tendency to see things as permanent. I mean, we see things changing. We know things are changing. This is what I found is interesting. We can, you know, day follow night, season follow each other. We see things changing. And when something happens, generally, you know, you have a headache. I don't just have a headache now. I am going to have a headache 
for the whole week. I have a problem. It's not just a problem now. I am going to have this problem forever after. I mean, we seem to have this strange, permanentizing kind of faculty. And that often, in a way, exaggerates what is going on and kind of stops us from creatively engaging with it. Another thing that we do is that we want lasting satisfaction. We want lasting satisfaction. And basically, the Buddha is saying you cannot get lasting satisfaction. If you, if you think something is going to last forever and make you happy forever, this is not going to work. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to kind of get into difficulty. And the same, also, we have this tendency to make things solid, to make things fixed, to make things separate. When if we really look, things are conditioned, things are composite, things are interdependent. And so that's what I like to look more now. So the first one, so I would say that this experiential wisdom actually is going to change the view we have, but not only that, it's going to change our action. It's going to change our attitude. And then we will have more compassion, genuine compassion for ourselves and for others. So the first one is impermanence. And I think it's important to see that impermanence has two aspects. One is death, and the other one is change. That, in a way, death is the ultimate change. You know, this is, that's the ultimate change. And the thing with death is that as long as we are here, as long as it, we are alive, it has not happened to us. So for us, at one level, it's not real. Because I'm alive. I am not dead yet. This is very important. Impermanence is not saying you are dead now. It's saying you're going to be dead later. <laughs> Could be sooner than later, but it's a fact. But in actuality, it's not there. We are not dead yet. And generally, until it happens to us, other people die. So you kind of feel a little kind of like, you know, a little magical. Ah, not me. Not me. So in a way, you, you feel a little this kind of magic. Oh, yes. You know, I am kind of saved. I am, you know, it happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. And in a way, this would not be problematic as such. But what it creates is a little this feeling of taking things for granted. That to me is, is in a way the problem with kind of not really kind of being experientially aware that our life rests upon a single breath. I mean, my teacher, Master Kuzan in Korea, this is what something he would repeat to us a lot. Your life rests upon a single breath. And one thing they have in Korea, they have these big grandfather clocks. You know, it's like, imagine you're sitting here, 60 of you, and on the wall there is a grandfather clock who goes, talk, tack, talk, tack, talk, tack. And then when it comes to the end of the sitting, it goes, <laughs> boom. You know. And of course, the Westerner really disliked it. You know? They could not meditate because of the clock. 
So we wanted to get rid of the clock. And Master Kusen said, no way, because the clock is giving you a great Dharma lesson that you know your life is running out with each clock, <laughs> each talk, each tack, it's running out. So in his view, you had to meditate more, being aware of that. And in a way, I think to really, if we're really aware for ourselves, for others, that our life rests upon a single breath, I think life becomes more precious. I think we don't take things for granted anymore. And also I think we become more aware of our potential in this moment instead of being bored. This I think is interesting. You know, my Last year my niece had a crisis of boredom. She would go, I am bored! And she would get very excited about being bored and kind of, you know, very angry. And kind of, I think it's strange to be bored. As long as we're alive, it's amazing that we are alive. And so to really experience this, I think in a way you have to know the possibility of death. And through that, I think then it becomes much easier to have what I would call discriminative wisdom. What is important and what is not important. Because we, sometimes we are so upset by very minor things. When we can just let them be, let them. I know when I used to live in an English community, the, we used to have these interminable meetings once a week. And half of the time was about people not washing their teacups. This was the main thing. And I thought, but you know, we might die tomorrow, you know? And uh, so in a way to see what is important to say, what is important to work with, what is really not important. I think in the light of death, death then we kind of have more this discriminative wisdom. And also, I think sometimes impermanence at that level is seen a little as fatality. I think we have to be very careful not to use impermanence as fa fatality. Like when I was in Korea, in my young uh, career as a nun, something would get broken. I would, especially if it was not mine, ah, impermanence, who cares? <laughs> if, I think it's easy to kind of, you know, move on to do that. That's not the impermanence I'm talking about. But to me, I really understood impermanence. When I saw my father died, I was there when he, I saw his last breath. And at that moment, experientially, I really experienced impermanence. And what was interesting to me and revealing is that the next moment, there was this incredible compassion because then I looked at people in such a different way. I looked at them beyond their role, beyond the image that I had of them, to the human being in that moment was alive. But just their life rested upon a single breath. And then I really saw it. And then great compassion arose. And then it became much easier for me to see them as human beings instead of the abstraction, the idea I had of them. So that's to me, in a way, when you really know death in that way, then when you look at people, 
you see the fragility, you see the, pre- the, the preciousness of life. And then you can be more in life in this moment and also in a compassionate way to yourself and to others. And this, in a way, can have a very much an effect, I would say, in your daily life. One example is driving. It's strange. You know, you all, I'm sure, meditators here, and some of you might be drivers and have cars. But Buddhist meditators get as weird as anybody else when they drive a car. It's very strange. You become somebody else when you drive a car. Compassion seems to go out of the window. And... To me, that lesson in impermanence had a very good effect uh, because I'm French and generally I like to drive relatively fast. But after that, I drive more slowly because I thought, is it better to arrive dead fast or slowly alive? (laughs) And it really made a difference. And so in a way, it makes you again more aware to the preciousness of life. Then there is other aspect is the changing nature. And as I said, there is this expectation, there is this assumption of constancy. So something is good, it is wonderful, it must last forever. Something is bad, it is terrible, it is going to last forever. I mean, what is interesting in that, permanentizing, is that effect of exaggeration and how that exaggeration creates suffering. But to see The good will last a certain time, and then it will change into something else, and what is bad is the same. Nothing can last forever. Nothing can be constant in that way. And I know for myself, sometimes I have been on retreat, where, you know, I'm sitting on retreat, and I can never know if, when I come on a retreat, if I will have pain or not in my body. Sometimes... I have very little pain. Sometimes I have lots of pain. But if I look, even within a day, I can notice that the physical pain is not exactly the same the whole time. It changes very much. If you, oh, that's why the, the idea in the Vipassana is to observe what is going on and to see how much it changes. Even pain, even some pain sometimes you think it's so solid actually if you look into it without grasping at it in any way you just go and look and it's fluid it's changing and it's shape it is not fixed and solid so you know to notice during the day during the the week to notice again that changing nature of pleasant state or unpleasant state they come and they go And at the same time, the fact that things change doesn't mean that the, the, the things are not sustaining. I think often the, there is this idea that if things are impermanent, things are changing constantly. So every second, everything is changing. But impermanence is not saying that. It's just saying there is a possibility for change. So in general, generally, there can be constancy of relative sustaining, but within that, there can be change. I remember when I first uh, fell in love with Stephen, and we told each other our feeling. My, I mean, I was a Buddhist, so my first reaction was, 
but this is impermanent. <laughs> so we barely started. It was for me. It was already finished. <laughs> and Stephen said, "But no, no, no. In the impermanency, there is a sustaining." And he gave a good example of the ocean, that the ocean, in a way, remained relatively itself in terms of the water, in terms of the salt, and things like this. But its shape can take many forms. It can be very turbulent. It can be very flat. So it's the same way. Things can sustain themselves relatively, and at the same time, there is often a possibility for change. So I think to be careful to understand impermanence in that way. And I think another thing which we have to consider in terms of the meditation, in terms of being on a retreat, in terms of change, is to see often that in the day, I think we have different level of physical energy. And so when we feel really very quite energetic physically, then generally we are quite bright and we sit and it's relatively easier. And then when we feel that the focus is going, that we feel more pain, we might be a little more restless, I would say often it's because our physical energy level has gone down. And I think it's very important to see that we cannot maintain the same exact energy level. So in a way to see how often there is it kind of it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. I mean you might wonder why Stephen did not come for the second seat this afternoon. I can reveal that <laughs> he's been so tired he fell asleep. <laughs> so again, you know, I'm sure generally as the day goes he gets a little more energetic. But Every one of us can, you know, get a little low energy level. And so just to see that, again, to be careful of that idea of constancy, that there is a certain, I would say, constancy in our intention. We can have a relatively constant intention to be aware, to be awake. But within that, there can be fluctuation in the energy level. And also, in terms of change, what I think is very interesting, in terms of compassion, is something that we do, which I would say is relatively uncompassionate, is actually to fix ourselves and to fix others. And we do this when you say, you always do this. You never do that. And when you say that, if you say to yourself, I am always stupid. I mean, you're basically saying you're stupid every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year, forever after. I mean, this is, I mean, how can one live like that? But one can't. Even if you wanted to be stupid that much, it would be very hard to sustain. It's impossible in a way. So I think, to me, this is actually the gift of impermanence is to see in a way the potential for change. That there can be a tendency to be a certain way. We have repeatedly possibly repeat certain mistakes. But in a way we are not doomed to always do the same thing. I think this is very important. 
Because if you feel you are doomed, then you, in a way you don't see that there can be change. And also I think the compassion to f- see the possibility of change within oneself and also the possibility of, t- of change within others. I had this interesting experience with my nephew long ago uh, when he was really in a bad space. I taught him meditation just in case. You know, it could help him. It did not help him then. And 10 years later, he had a really bad time. And recently he told me, you know, when I had that bad time, I remembered your meditation instruction. And I did it, and it was so helpful. And I would have never thought. So in a way, we never know. So I think it's very important not to fix ourselves. Because I think this is a very incompassionate thing to do, to fix ourselves, fix others. So in a way, to be careful when you say always, you say never. And maybe to say time to time, possibly, it happens. And then to look, but why does it happen? When does it happen? I used to have a tendency to lose my purse. When, and you know, I lose it once, twice, and then the third time Stephen says, you always lose your purse. <laughs> So I had that vision of myself forever after losing these endless, numberless purses. And then I thought, no, 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 I don't always do it, but I do it time to time. When I do it, when do I do it? And I saw that it was when I was traveling, when I was tired, and when I was a little kind of stressed. And so now when I'm tired, I kind of hold the purse. <laughs> And then it's Stephen who started to lose his purse. But <laughs> <laughs> then there is dukkha, and dukkha has many has different aspects. I think this is very important. You have unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, and suffering. So dukkha is not just suffering, but it's this different idea. First, why are things unreliable? Because they are changing. I think this is just a basic kind of follow-up. And so in a way, what is interesting with this unreliability is that in this modern world, everything is relatively built, and this is interesting, to last. I mean, you get warranty. You get a year warranty or three-year warranties. And then at the same time, it has to be obsolete so we can buy another one. It's kind of interesting, this tool. The reliability, which everybody wants, and then the unreliability which is needed so that the economy functions. But that's another story. But to see how if we kind of fix unreliability, that things must always be reliable, that, that it's constant again, then every time something doesn't work, is not reliable, that it be ourselves, that it be machine, that it be a friend, that it be the universe, then we're shocked. We say it should not be so. When actually, if you kind of accept that there is a certain amount of unreliability in the world, then actually it can become much easier to deal with change, to deal with especially sudden change that we kind of generally are shocked and we find very difficult to deal with. So I think that's what, in a way, the, the Buddha is saying. Things can be unreliable. They're not always unreliable. But they can be. I mean, at the moment, Stephen and I are working a lot with unreliability of the internet. 
connection in France. This is a good uh, training with it. And the other aspect is unsatisfactoriness. And why look at unsatisfactoriness is more because we have this desire for lasting satisfaction. So we're always looking, looking for something. If I get this, then I will be happy and this is it forever. So it's not that happiness is a problem, no. It's the wanting that it lasts in the same way forever. This is what is a problem. And also, so what we have, then it's not so much the wanting is a hope that this is going to give it to us. So I think we become addicted to the hope that this will do it. The partner, the job, the place, the house, whatever it is. And so we kind of have this, <gasps> and then we get the thing and it lasts, I don't know. I mean, we had, um, when we moved to France seven years ago, we had the house renovated and it was really nice and new and fixed and everything and it was wonderful. And then I go to check that things are fine and I open a door and then it falls on me and then, you know, I was kind of lying on the sofa and then I started to see some kind of a blue patch of a kind of a, I think there is some humidity problem and nearly immediately I could see it was I mean, it was nice, but it was not totally unchanging and totally reliable. And I could not, in a way, hope that it will be the perfect house and stay perfect forever. Already, it's changing. So how can I be with that change? How can I accommodate that change? So in a way, this is what the Buddha is saying. That you can, you can... Yes, things are useful. We need things in, in our life. But to be careful what we put into it, which is not there. That lasting satisfaction. That this will give me lasting satisfaction. And sometimes you do this with meditation. If I do meditation, then I will get awakened and then I will be sorted. You know, and then you kind of wait, wait, you know. And then you think, well, this is not doing it. Well, it's not going to do it in that way. I think what meditation, what we can, you know, we work for is inner contentment. That we can develop a certain quality of being. Where we can be stable, we can be open in such a way that we can meet whatever comes to us. That it be joyful, that it be difficult, we can encounter it, we can meet it, we can creatively engage with it. Instead of kind of putting things around it. That, w that won't be there. I remember my first book. My first book. <gasps> my first book, you know, waiting, waiting for, you know, <gasps> this book, this book, you know, that will really make me, you know, wow. So I wait, I wait. Finally, it comes in the post. I open the packet. <gasps> the book. I look at it, the front. I look at the back. Lasted about two minutes. And then, well, I still, you know, had to eat my toast. I still had to go to the bathroom. I still had to work. It really was not the key to happiness, you know. So to see what we do. But actually, what we do with the meditation is to cultivate an attitude where we, we have satisfaction, but we know it cannot be that lasting, imagined, idealized satisfaction. 
And then there is suffering. And I think, again, the Buddha is not saying everything is suffering. But he is saying there is suffering in the world. And it is essential to know it, to understand it. And through that, to see the conditions that give rise to it. This is a key. And Stephen talked to you about, yesterday talked to you about conditions. To me, this is the, the key to understanding suffering. To see what is it that give rise to it. What are the conditions around it? Because, in a way, if we don't want suffering, if we push it away, if you don't want to see it, then actually we cannot understand how is it, how does it manifest, what are the conditions around it, how do I participate on it, how do I contribute to it, how do I make it worse, how can I be with this? So in a way, that's why the Buddha is saying, look, what is suffering? How does it arise? How does it happen? And so in a way, by knowing it fully, we actually stop to reduce ourselves to it or identify ourselves with it. I think this is very important. Often when we have pain, we cling to it and then we reduce ourselves to our pain, to our headache or to our pain in our stomach or whatever it is. And our world is just that. But actually we cannot just be that. We are so, even if we have the greatest pain, we are more than that in any given moment. And I think this is that the idea of suffering is to, is to see that we, we suffer when we reduce ourselves. But when we open to the suffering, we try to understand it, then there can be more spaciousness around the suffering. It can become, again, more fluid, more, there is more dynamism, there is more fluidity, there is more movement. But also I think we can start to see how can we creatively engage, especially with the suffering that we create ourselves. Not all suffering is self-produced. This is very important. Some of it really comes from the outside. You cross the road, a drunk driver runs over you. I mean, you are in the bad place at the bad time. It's this is not your fault at all. But all the time, I would say the suffering is relatively self-produced in, in that we kind of cultivate certain habits, we do certain things which are detrimental to us. I remember when I was in Korea, I, uh, I became very ill with my stomach. And then I used, to, I was going around kind of, poor me, poor me, I am ill, this is terrible, this is awful. And then finally I thought, but maybe this is a suffering the Buddha is talking about, you know. Maybe I should look into it. So I looked into it and I realized I was ill when on the big day, the big ceremony day, where there was lots of different foods and I'm very curious, so I wanted to taste everything. And then I used to have this stomach problem. So after that, big ceremony day, be careful. Be careful. Don't try. And after that, I was much better. But in a way, I had to acknowledge the suffering, see what produced it, and how I could creatively uh, play with it. So that's what, and also I think in terms, until we really know the suffering, not in, as an abstract idea, the story we have of it, 
We really know it in our whole body and mind. We won't let go. And that's why I think the Buddha is saying, look, really know what you are doing. And I saw that when I have a certain tendency to be irritated and irritable and angry. This is improving. This was many years ago. And <laughs> things have improved now a bit. And uh, I had a, a little, uh, what I would call a Buddhist argument, where you don't shout, but the feeling are strong. It's very interesting, you know, when meditators disagree with each other. The voice is not raised, but you can feel the energy. So I had such an argument, and then at the end of it, we, I had to, to leave the argument, actually, because I had to work, and I had to kind of cut vegetable for a, a dinner for a group, so I was cutting my vegetable, and suddenly I realized that I was doing this, and it was a little dangerous. And I kind of looked in my body, and I realized my whole body was shaking because of the anger. I was shaking. And I looked into the body and I thought, I am doing this to myself. Nobody is doing this to me. This is me who is doing it. And in that seeing, in that knowing, it just went. And then I went into the mind and I thought, what I am telling myself? And I was telling myself, I am right. She is wrong. I am right. She is wrong. And I realized she must be doing exactly the opposite. And I just saw it was so funny. And it just went, because I saw it was, we were both right and wrong. And so in a way, in order to let go of what creates the suffering, we have really to go into it. I would say in the whole body and mind, in the feeling, in the, the mental, but also physically go into it, instead of going into the story. And then when we really go into it, it opens up in a different way. We can creatively engage with it. And also, if we really kind of uh, no suffering, no suffering for ourselves, that it be mental suffering, emotional suffering, or physical suffering, we can know two things. One is that the suffering is painful. And I think it's very important that to know the pain of the suffering and also to know that it is very isolating, that nobody can have my headache for me, nobody can have my mental illness for me, or whatever it is. When we are ill, when we suffer in a certain way, this is very isolating. And I think when we know these two aspects of suffering, the pain of it, the isolation of it, then we can but have compassion for ourselves when we suffer and for others when they suffer too. And then we can really open our heart to their suffering. And then there is a last uh, characteristic, which is emptiness, non-self. And... This one, it's kind of, people often have a, I think it's relatively easy to see the changing nature. I think it's relatively easy to understand the suffering, the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness. But I think this emptiness, this non-self, this is very tricky. Because people feel, but 
if I have no self, what's going to happen? Or otherwise you think that one day you suddenly are going to fall into emptiness. You know, like one day I come in this room and you have all gone off in puffs of smokes or something, in some kind of big, kind of, you know, empty, I don't know what. But that's not what non-self says. I think we have to be very precise here. What does it mean? Basically, it means that it's empty of existing independently, empty of self-generation, that we kind of, you know, totally existing independently from anything else. So basically, it comes back to this notion of conditionality, that things come upon other things, that we are made up of things, that we are composite. And basically, that we are not reducible to any particular things, to any particular condition that forms us. And there is no kernel within ourselves what, to which thing can get stuck to. That I think is often we have this idea that there is this thing here and then everything kind of gets stuck on it. When there is nothing, and nothing that can be stuck to it. So, for example, if I take this chair, we would say that, I mean, from the Buddhist point of view, you could say it's empty. But it's empty of existing separately, of being self-generating. So it just means that it comes upon part. That you cannot find a bit of the chair which says the chairness of the chair. It's just saying that the chair comes upon all the parts that forms it. If I take the back of the chair, I get a stool. If I take the seat of the chair, then I don't get much, and I can't really sit on it. So in a way, the chair comes upon all the bits, and then it's a chair. But it's not separate from the bits that forms it. That's just what the non-self is about. It's not some mystical emptiness or some mystical kind of uh, uh, non-selfness either. And in a way, it's the same with us. We come upon conditions. We are not reducible to any of the conditions that forms us. And I would say the meditation is in a way the discovery of all the conditions, inner and outer, that forms us. That in a way we are a flow of conditions. And that's why I find it interesting. When we say, I, me, mine, we feel very kind of, I, this is my cushion. This is my chair. This is my room, my bed, or whatever it is. And in a way to play with it and to say this flow of condition is using this chair. This flow of condition is doing this. Just as kind of an experiment in this kind of very fixed idea of I, me, mine. So at that level, there is a self. There is a relative functioning self. I think this is very important, the fact there is no fixed self, but there is this relatively fluid, changing self. It's relatively sustaining, but also relatively changing. I mean, you see me now, tomorrow morning, it's very unlikely that an elephant will sit on this chair. I doubt I will change that much overnight. But of course, I could have a heart attack in the night. That's more possible than me becoming an elephant. So to see there is a certain kind of sustaining and also a certain 
possibility of change. But often what we do is that we, and this is where the things become complicated, when we kind of, we think there is something, there is a kernel within us or within things, and then there is a kind of a quality to it, which again is solid and is fixed. And we can do the same with the chair. I am really tired. I have walked many miles. And then there is this chair. And I sit on this chair. Oh, this is such a good chair. Such a nice chair. Wow, wonderful chair. I want 10 of them. <laughs> but I am in a hurry. And the, the place is a little full of stuff. I am in a hurry. I could, I catch my feet in the chair. I fall down and I get up and I say, wow, that's a stupid chair. That's a terrible chair. I'm going to burn this chair. <laughs> it's bad. But that's what we do. And that's why, in a way, this idea of non-self, this idea of emptiness, of conditionality, is to dissolve a little. This kind of way we have to fix. This is good. This is always good. This is bad. This is always bad. Instead of seeing the goodness, the badness arise upon inner and outer condition and trying to understand the condition that give rise to the goodness, to the happiness, the condition that give rise to the suffering, to the sadness, etc. Because another thing that we do, as I said, is that we think that there is something here and then thing gets stuck on it experience, especially bad experience, gets stuck on it, or an interesting one is words. You know, you kind of, you hear somebody say something to you, kind of maybe a little painful, a little nasty. Ten years later, they said, you know, I mean, the word, the word, the moment the word arose, it was gone. But we grasp at it, and we stick it somewhere. To me, this is what is interesting. This notion of non-self is to kind of try to, to creatively engage with things and not seeing them so fixed and solid and so kind of staying. But to kind of they arise, how can I creatively engage with them, then they disappear. That's what we're trying to do, not to make things disappear, yourself and everything. No, but to deal with them, to be with them in a different way. Let's say, I look at you very meaningfully, but nicely. Nicely. Smile, but I look very deeply into you all. And I say, you are enlightened. <laughs> and you think, wow, Martin said I am enlightened. I'm enlightened. This is great. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I look at you a little more meanly. I say, you are stupid. And if you think, oh, I didn't say, I'm stupid. Oh, but she's stupid to say, I'm stupid. And off you go. But I mean, it's the word how come? I mean, you can consider that. Is it true? Does it mean anything? Can I relate to it? Or is it just Martin stuff? And it has nothing at all to do with me. 
And she just said that because she was giving a talk. <laughs> and she, had, she needed something to say. So in a way, again, this idea of non-self, of emptiness, is to make things, again, more spacious, more movement, more fluidity, and actually to give us choices. I think this is in terms of attitude to give us a choice. We can look at this in a different way. We can consider this in a different way. And so also in terms of this uh, conditionality, to see that we, we come upon condition. This is, I think, to me, again, the key also to interconnection, interdependence, and compassion. <coughs> to see, often we have this feeling of isolation, that we exist independently. And then we feel very isolated in that independence. But actually, if we just look deeply into our existence, our life rests upon mostly everything outside of us. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink, the clothes we wear, the house we live in, the medicine we take, etc., etc. Most of the time we don't make them. But this is what sustains us. So we, our life is sustained by everything outside of us. And that's what the emptiness, the non-self is about. The fact that we actually are into this interdependence, that actually we participate in the world and the world passes with day in our survival. And if we see that connection, how we connect it through the breath, through the water, through everything we depend upon, then actually we can look at ourselves and others again in a much more connected, in a much more open, in a much more compassionate way. This is something as a monk and a nun in Korea, you have a chant which kind of every time you eat, you recite this chant and it's about how the rice you have in your bowl have come from somebody working in it in the field and all the energy that has been required for this rice to be in your bowl. And so in a way to see that in that grain of rice. And so for us, when we look at things, to in a way, instead of seeing them as fixed and solid and separate, to see them as made up, as composite, as conditioned. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.